Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 61 Nick versus Township of Scott. This is a United States Supreme Court case from earlier this year, came out in June of 2019. It involves the Fifth Amendment taking clause, one of my favorite topics, and it also deals with the concept of stare decisis, one of the things we've talked about before. This 5-4 majority overturned a 1985 Supreme Court decision. The holding in this case, Nick versus Township of Scott, says that one who asserts a takings clause claim that if the government has taken property without just compensation, that person who had the property taken can bring a lawsuit in federal court without first going through whatever state procedures might be available to the plaintiff. And remember, stare decisis, and it's Latin for to stand by things decided. Stare is like stare, S-T-A-R-E, and decisis, D-E-C-I-S-I-S, sorry, decisis, is the concept that if if the Supreme Court has settled a legal issue, then it's settled for all time, basically, even if it was decided wrong. Now, even the people that defend stare decisis will admit that sometimes it's important to overturn precedent. you got things like Brown versus Board of Education. It's a very obvious one, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. When the Supreme Court decides to overturn a prior case, it is, at the very least, noteworthy. And they did it here, and we'll talk about that. Now, we discussed another case from this most recent term, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, which overturned precedent also. We talked about that one in episode 44. And the dissent in that case and the dissent in this case, Nick versus Township, each decried the abandonment of precedent. And we'll mention why. Again, we mentioned it in the Franchise Tax Board. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media. It's Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'd love to hear from you. Check out the Facebook page, like it, review it, comment, subscribe, and share. All of that, it helps get the message out. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. And before we wade into Nick versus Township, we had a special edition of The Law come out Monday, it's episode 60, where I discussed the Electoral College and its current state with Michael Baca. He was the plaintiff out of Colorado in a case decided by the Tenth Circuit in his favor earlier this year. When he is one of Colorado's elected electors, presidential electors, refused to rubber stamp Hillary Clinton as the only choice presented because the Constitution allows electors to use their discretion when voting. They cannot be bound by the state. That was his argument. Uh, he's right. And the Tenth Circuit backed him up. So hearing about the details of how he came to that decision, how, how he did it, and the ramifications of it was fascinating. So go back and check out episode 60 if you're interested in that for that discussion. And it got mentioned in Scott's blog, which is a blog dedicated to covering things that the Supreme Court is doing. The cases, the petitions for certiorari, which is another Latin way, another Latin phrase, which means a request to hear this case. Baca's case is pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, along with another case, 
that came out to the opposite conclusion out of the state of Washington. We don't know if the Supreme Court's going to hear them or not. We're waiting for them to make that decision. Hopefully they will. So the Tenth Circuit said states cannot bind electors to vote a certain way. And we discussed that in episode 48. And then in episode 49, we discussed that case out of Washington, where the state Supreme Court of Washington said its presidential electors could be bound by state law. The U.S. Supreme Court really needs to resolve this dispute before November of 2020, next presidential election. And we discuss why in all of those uh, different podcasts and most recently the special edition with Michael Baca in episode 60. We also discussed the last Supreme Court case that discussed the Electoral College in any way, and that was in episode 50. So we got 48, 49, and 50, a series of the law podcast dealing with this issue. And it's going to be in the news because one way or another, even if the Supreme Court doesn't decide it, it could very well be an issue in the next election if there is a legitimate dispute that has not been resolved about how electoral college votes are to be counted. Because we've got two contradictory opinions from different jurisdictions that only the U.S. Supreme Court can resolve. I know the way they should resolve it, but it's important that they resolve it to avoid a potential for some kind of banana republic result where two candidates both have an argument for having one. We need to resolve those arguments before it becomes an issue. So stay tuned on that. So back here to episode 61, Nick versus Township of Scott. Like I said, it was a five to four opinion. The majority was written, majority opinion was written by the Chief Justice, John Roberts. He was joined by Clarence Thomas, who also wrote a two-page concurrence. Also in the majority in this matter, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. The four dissenting justices joined Elena Kagan's dissent. Those were RBG. Stephen Breyer, and Sonia Sotomayor. Though this is one of the few cases where the justices are split along ideological lines. Now, most really aren't, but this one clearly is. And I submit it's not so much because they disagree on the takings clause issue, but that the dissent is in full protect precedent mode, just like they were in the Hyatt case, the tax board versus Hyatt case. Because the dissent here, these four justices, are looking to head to any attempt to reverse Roe versus Wade. And that tax board v. Hyatt case, exact same lineup of the five to four. And progressives complain about overturning precedent quite often when it fits their narrative. I mean, there is an attack on Roe versus Wade. I don't think it's going to be successful anyway, but the progressives here are very worried about that and they want to do everything they can to uh, keep it alive. So that's why precedent has become very, very important to them recently. Now, of course, when precedent doesn't fit their narrative, they don't care. The Democratic presidential nominees right now, almost all of them, I think, are bragging about doing whatever they can to overturn Citizens United because they think the government should be able to censor documentaries. And we discussed Citizens United back in episode two. It was so important. It was one of the first ones I did. So selective outrage is a thing. Who are the people involved in this case? We have Mary Jane Nick. She owned property in the township of Scott, which is in the state of Pennsylvania. Nick is her last name as in a single member of the New York City NBA team. Not multiple Nicks, just one Nick. So let's jump right into the text of this case. John Roberts explains it, and he says, The takings clause of the Fifth Amendment states that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. That seems really simple to me, although the last three words should have been deleted. The Constitution is not a perfect document by any means, and it should have just read, Private property shall not be taken for public use. 
period. But they added the without just compensation, so it can be done as long as they pay you for it. And we'll talk about how that plays out in relation to the other prohibitions on government actions in the Bill of Rights. Because remember, I don't want to be too repetitive on this, but the Bill of Rights doesn't grant a single right. The Bill of Rights actually restricts the government and what it can do to infringe upon your rights. More properly, it should have been called the Bill of Restrictions, not the Bill of Rights. And we discussed another takings clause in episode 20. That was the horrible Kelo decision, K-E-L-O, where the Supreme Court in that case said that a public use could include taking it away from somebody like a homeowner who pays a lower property tax rate and giving it to a developer who would pay a higher property tax rate, which is absolutely horrendous, but it is still in effect. In this case, Roberts explains what they're doing because what they end up overturning this case called Williamson County Regional Planning Commission versus Hamilton Bank of Johnson City. I'll just say Williamson County from now on. He says, we, the Supreme Court in that case, held that a property owner whose property has been taken by a local government, has not suffered a violation of his Fifth Amendment rights, and thus cannot bring a federal takings claim in federal court until a state court has denied his claim for just compensation under state law. All right, that's what they're doing here. They're overthrowing that decision from 1985. And they throw it out because, as Chief Justice Roberts says, as we later held in another case, San Remo Hotel in 2005, a state court's resolution of a claim for just compensation under state law generally has a preclusive effect in any subsequent federal suit. A plaintiff, Chief Justice Roberts writes, thus finds himself in a catch-22. He cannot go to federal court without going to state court first, but if he goes to state court and loses, his claim will be barred in federal court because of a full faith and credit clause and a federal statute. The federal claim, Chief Justice notes, dies aborning, which means it dies while it's being born. He goes on, a property owner has an actionable Fifth Amendment takings claim when the government takes his property without paying for it. That's it right there. So you don't have to exhaust any potential or available state court remedies as well. You can go right to federal court. Chief Justice says, Petitioner Rose Mary Nick, and this is explaining the the incredible arrogance of government in general, but in this case, the local government. She owns 90 acres of land in Scott Township in Pennsylvania. It's a small community just north of Scranton, which of course is home of Dunder Mifflin. Nick lives in a single family home on the property and uses the rest of the land as a grazing area for horses and other farm animals. The property includes a small graveyard where the ancestors of Nick's neighbors are allegedly buried. Such family cemeteries are fairly common in Pennsylvania where backyard burials have long been permitted. Okay, so that's the background. That's the factual situation. Nick owns this land, 90 acres. It's got a private family cemetery on it. And here comes the government arrogance part. Back quoting the Supreme Court opinion. In December of 2012, the township passed an ordinance requiring that all cemeteries be kept open and accessible to the general public during daylight hours. The ordinance defined a cemetery as a place or area of ground, whether contained on private or public property, which has been set apart for or otherwise utilized as a burial place for deceased human beings. The ordinance also authorized township code enforcement officers to enter upon property to determine the existence and location of a cemetery. Okay, that's right out of the Supreme Court decision. Enter onto private property to see if they have a cemetery and if they're keeping it open to the public during daylight hours. That's just 
absolute arrogance of this little town city council, or whatever they call it there, board of commissioners or whatever. This is not a public cemetery. It is a private cemetery on private land for family members. And apparently this is a common thing in Pennsylvania. It's not like she's got the only one. And it says officers may enter upon property for enforcement. Are you kidding me? That is absurd. And it restricts what Nick can do with her property. It requires that she open it up to the public, which is a taking. It's not They're not taking her whole property, but they're taking part of what constitutes ownership rights away from her. And in some cases, that's enough. So Roberts goes on. In 2013, after the little city town had passed this law, a township officer found several grave markers on Nick's property and notified her that she was violating the ordinance by failing to open the cemetery to the public during the day. So what the heck was this guy doing on her property? Was he just wandering around this 90-acre farm looking for reasons to cite her, to harass her? That's a problem right there. You've got a government official looking to give somebody a ticket for something when they don't have any other reason other than they're just wandering around on private property looking for stuff. I have an idea. How about the government leave people alone who are minding their own business? The township of Scott should certainly be doing that. The Supreme Court goes on. Nick responded, by seeking declaratory and injunctive relief in state court on the ground that the ordinance effected the taking of her property. Now, it did. Although I'm not confident a court is going to ultimately rule in her favor, given prior cases of similar nature. Courts say that they've got to take a substantial ability of you to use your property away for, for the, to have any compensation, generally. So it's not any taking, it's a substantial taking, which I think is incorrect, but that's the current status of the takings clause. So for example, if you own some property, let's say near the ocean, it's wetlands and you own it completely and you want to build something on it, but then some government agency says, no, you cannot. They're not taking your property, but they're restricting what you can do with it, which is taking away part of your rights of ownership, which is a taking. And oftentimes the courts have said, no, you don't get anything for that because you can do something else with your property. And that's ridiculous. It's horrible. That is a tyrannical state. We're going to tell you, you can't do something with your property and we're not going to compensate you for the lack of what you can do with it now. So depriving someone of the ability to keep people off your land is taking that ability away. It's taking that aspect of ownership away. So it is a taking, but jurisprudence is often says otherwise recently. She wins here. She can bring her lawsuit in federal court. She wins the ability to bring her lawsuit, but she's still going to have to win it down there. The court goes on. Inverse condemnation, that is when the government takes your property and you sue them for just compensation, as opposed to them saying, hey, we're going to take your property away from you because we want to build a school and we're going to pay you X amount and then you got a whole negotiation thing you got to go through. So that's when the state starts it. They say, we're going to take away your property. Here's the legal process. We're going to take it away. That's regular condemnation. Inverse condemnation is when you go, hey, you took it away from me. Now you have to pay me. So the court says, inverse condemnation stands in contrast to direct condemnation condemnation, in which the government initiates proceedings to acquire title under its eminent domain authority. Court goes on. In response to Nick's suit, now get this, the township withdrew the violation notice, so they, they threw away her ticket, her citation, and agreed to stay enforcement of the ordinance during the state court proceedings. Then the state court declined to rule on Nick's request for declaratory and injunctive relief because without an ongoing enforcement action, because the township said, oh, we're not going to enforce it while you're in court, the court said, well, we can't take it, we can't continue because you can no longer demonstrate the irreparable harm necessary for equitable relief. This results in a never-ending litigation dance. The township says, okay, 
your suit was thrown out. Now we're going to enforce it. Okay, now she can sue again. So she sues now saying they're going to try to enforce this on me. And the court says, okay, we'll proceed. Then the township says, no, we're not going to enforce it against you. That is a dance that would never end. So the trial court threw out her case based on Williamson County, which was this 1985 U.S. Supreme Court case, that this case overrules because of the concept of exhaustion. A plaintiff must exhaust all possible state remedies before filing in federal court. No longer the rule in a takings case because of this, thank goodness. So with this case, at least in terms of takings under the Fifth Amendment, it is now clearly and expressly no longer required to do anything in state court before you file in federal court. Justice Roberts says, we granted certiorari, which means we agreed to hear this dispute, to reconsider the holding of Williamson County, that property owners must seek just compensation under state law in state court before bringing a federal takings claim under U.S. Code Section 1983, 15 U.S. Code Section 1983. We've talked about that civil rights action in the past. And we talked about it recently when we mentioned Bivens versus six unnamed federal agents. So check that one out too. So the current U.S. Supreme Court considered it and tossed it out, tossed out Williamson County. They discussed this case just a few years after Williamson County was decided, where a plaintiff did what Williamson County instructed it to do, but then the federal court said they couldn't sue in federal court. Roberts explains, the adverse state court decision that, according to Williamson County, that case, gave rise to a right federal takings claim, simultaneously barred that claim, preventing the federal court from ever considering it. And we mentioned that. This is the kind of literal nonsense that government creates. Lewis Carroll would not have included that sentence in a novel because it's too absurd. The absurdity, thankfully, is fixed in this case by the U.S. Supreme Court. Roberts goes on. If a local government takes private property without paying for it, that government has violated the Fifth Amendment, just as the Takings Clause says, without regard to subsequent state court proceedings. Seems pretty clear to me. He goes on. The availability of any particular compensation remedy cannot infringe or restrict the property's owner's federal constitutional claim, just as the existence of a state action for battery does not bar a Fourth Amendment claim of excessive force. Now, these are not the same, and Kagan's dissent points that out. This is not a good metaphor. This is not a good comparison, because the Fourth Amendment doesn't say government cannot unreasonably search your house with, without just compensation. It doesn't say that. Those last three words are in the Fifth Amendment. The government cannot take your property without just compensation. Those are that, That's a very big addition to the Bill of Restrictions, Bill of Rights. The government cannot unreasonably seize you at all, but they can take your property with just compensation. So you can see the problem with those three words and this example. Now, I don't think this bad example, it doesn't undermine the totality of the decision. Nevertheless, it would probably be better if that wasn't in there. He goes on, Chief Justice Roberts, a later payment of compensation, if they've taken your property, may remedy the constitutional violation that occurred at the time of the taking, but that does not mean the violation ever took place. A bank robber might give the loot back, but he still robbed the bank. Now, that's correct, and it shows the problem with the takings clause as it's written in the U.S. Constitution. It allows that government robbery the taking as long as there's just compensation. Well, what if you don't want to sell your house like the like Kilo? She lived there. She'd been married there. Her parents lived there. She didn't want to sell the house. Well, the Constitution says they can take it, according to Kilo now, even though all they were going to do is tear it down and let a developer use it for a business project. And the government can do that as long as they pay you for it, as long as there's just compensation. And I submit that that's not just, but it is constitutional. Just another example of how the two concepts 
are not synonymous. The concepts of justice or constitutional or the concepts of good policy and constitutional, completely different things, despite people conflating the two all the time. See it on the news, the cable news or in talk radio. This is constitutional because it's a good idea. Ah, that just drives me crazy. No, that's whether or not it's a good idea has nothing to do with whether or not it's constitutional. In this case, something I think is a bad idea, making someone sell you their property is horrible policy. I think it's unjust, but it is constitutional. It is expressly permitted in the Constitution as long as they pay you for it. Court goes on. The next question is whether we should overrule Williamson County or whether stare decisis counsels in favor of adhering to the decision despite its error. Now get this next sentence. Roberts is quoting another Supreme Court case about stare decisis and the importance of it. But get this. This is from the Supreme Court opinion. The doctrine of stare decisis reflects a judgment, and this is where he's quoting another Supreme Court case, that in most matters it is more important that the applicable rule of law be settled than it be settled right. Do you get that? That is what stare decisis is based upon. And settling it is more important than getting it right. Remember that Lewis Carroll reference I made earlier? It's applicable again. This is too absurd for the Red Queen. Chief Justice goes on. We, the Supreme Court, have identified several factors to consider in deciding whether to overrule a past decision, including the quality of its reasoning, the workability of the rule it established, its consistency with other related decisions, and reliance on the decision. Then he applies that to the Williamson County case. Williamson County was not just wrong. Its reasoning was exceptionally ill-founded. In light of the foregoing, Chief Justice says, the dissent cannot, with respect, fairly maintain its extreme assertions regarding our application of the principle of stare decisis. Now, remember, this whole stare decisis thing, the subtext here is pretty obvious. It's Roe versus Wade. I don't think the current composition of the Supreme Court is going to overturn it anyway, but that's what the progressives fear, and they're fighting that battle. And there are attempts to overturn it. Was it Georgia and Alabama or two of the states that passed statutes that clearly are in violation of Roe versus Wade, and they knew the lower courts were going to throw them out, but the entire idea of these state legislatures was to get it back before the Supreme Court so they could throw it out. I don't think that's going to work, but it's obvious that's what they're trying, and that is why the quote-unquote progressives now are really, really hanging on to precedent, no matter what it is. They don't want anything overturned, because the more things that get overturned, their reasoning goes, and it's probably right, the easier it will be to overturn Roe. So right now, man, Stare decisis is the most important thing to these progressives, unless, of course, we're going to talk about Citizens United. Again, consistency isn't always a thing. Intellectual consistency sometimes gets in the way of one's policy desires. So just quickly, I'm going to mention one line from Justice Thomas's concurrence. He agrees with the majority, but he wanted to write separately on a few issues. And he points, he says this, if this requirement that the Supreme Court has just restated If this requirement makes some regulatory programs unworkable in practice, which is what the township actually argued in its brief, that this makes our regulatory programs unworkable in practice. Thomas says, if it makes some regulatory programs unworkable in practice, so be it. Our role is to enforce the takings clause as written. Amen, Justice Thomas. The Constitution is supposed to make it harder for the government to do things, including implement regulatory programs. It is the entire point of the Constitution. Would it be easier for law enforcement to catch bad guys if they could enter anybody's house for any reason and start looking for evidence? Sure it would. That'd make it a lot easier for them. But the Constitution prohibits that violation of your rights. 
So Thomas gives this argument, curt dismissal, it deserves. Kagan's 18-page dissent is about half of the, spends about half the pages on defending Williamson County and the rest of it talking about stare decisis. But the way she starts her dissent is frightening. She writes, this is a quote, begin with the basics. The meanings of the takings clause. The right that clause confers is not to be free from government takings of property for public purposes. Stop right there. That sentence indicates a rejection of the words of the Constitution and its underlying premises. It rejects the Constitution's entire foundation. And once that is done, collapsing the rest of it is easy. She writes, The right that clause confers. The clause does not confer a right. The clause restricts what the government may do. The government may not take your property without paying for it. That's not granting a right. It's not conferring a right. That is the verb she used. It confers a right. It does not confer a right. It restricts government authority. And that is crucial. She even says, let's begin with the basics. And then she proceeds to get the basics absolutely, completely, undeniably, 100% wrong. And that's frightening. So here's some of the highlights of her comments about stare decisis. And remember the subtext. She writes, everything said above aside, defending the Williamson County case, Williamson County should stay in the books because of stare decisis. Adherence to precedent is a foundation stone of the rule of law. She's really pumping the importance of stare decisis, of following precedent. Here's another one. It is not enough that five justices believe a precedent wrong. Reversing course demands a special justification over and above the belief that the precedent was wrongly decided. And here's another one. She wants to keep stare decisis alive. The entire idea of stare decisis is that judges do not get to reverse the decision just because they never liked it in the first instance. Once again, they need a reason other than the idea that the precedent was wrongly decided. Seems like a good, good enough reason for me. I mean, I, get, I understand the argument. I, I get it. But it really discounts the importance of applying the Constitution correctly, which I think has a certain level of importance as well. She goes back to that tax board versus Hyatt case I mentioned earlier that we discussed in episode 44 and cites Stephen Breyer's dissent in that case. She writes, he wrote, Justice Breyer, of the dangers of reversing legal course only because five members of a later court decide that an earlier ruling was incorrect. He concluded, this Kagan writing about Breyer, he concluded, today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. Well, she says, that didn't take long. Now one may wonder yet again. You and I don't have to wonder about what she's saying. We don't have to wonder about the subtext. The case the court might overrule next might be Roe versus Wade. Again, I don't think it's likely, but that's their concern. This is a good decision because it gives victims of government takings a clear federal remedy that did not exist before. And it is a good discussion of precedent and why stare decisis is going to be a big topic in the upcoming years. And think about this part that Chief Justice Roberts cites in the majority part. Is it more important that the applicable rule of law be settled than that it be settled right? Surely not. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been the Law Episode 61, Nick versus Township of Scott. We are brought to you, as always, in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think again on Twitter. It's at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. So check out the Facebook page for the podcast. 
make comments, etc. Uh, rate it. Give me a rating. Give me a review. I would love that. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. And until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. Dangerously.